Please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Now on this uh, day in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, we come to hear a word from God that we might partake of the sacrament with faith, hope, and love. Uh, We will begin our reading in verse 28. Uh, we'll read to the end of the chapter, Romans 8, 28, but uh, the, the text that I will preach on is verse 32 especially. Well, please give your read, uh, attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of our God, holy and inspired and infallible. Let us hear them and receive them as such. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O gracious God, we come to a text that proclaims the unspeakable love of God for sinners, for elect sinners. And as it is preached, Father, your servant who preaches needs the blessing and power of the Holy Ghost to preach the love of God. For the love of God is so so uh, unimaginable to us who are sinners, truly unfathomable in its fullness, that if the Spirit of God is not shed abroad into our hearts that we may receive the love of God therein. We would never know the fullness of the love of God. And so, Father, we pray that your minister who preaches the word now would be filled with the Holy Ghost and the congregation would be filled with the Holy Ghost as well, that we would with one accord glorify our God before we come to the Lord's table to see through and through that God is love. And so then, Father, would you bless us by shedding abroad in our hearts the love of God by the Holy Ghost, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 9.15 has that heartwarming doxology that says, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Unspeakable gift. That is what Jesus Christ is, friends. He is a gift that uh, you cannot even, uh, this is what the apostle said, the learned apostle says, I cannot speak fully of how great a gift Jesus Christ is. And that's what we see here as we come to the Lord's table, the unspeakable gift that is Jesus Christ portrayed before us. The Son of God is this unspeakable gift, impossible to fathom the greatness of it. And he is even more unspeakable to us today as an unspeakable gift when we know he is the gift that the Father did not spare. 
He is a gift to us in this way, that for our sins, God the Father delivered up and slew his only begotten Son by his good pleasure and his good purpose. And if we would know that, if we would see that as we would come to the table, would not thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift be the very doxology of our life day by day? It would put aside all of our cares, all of our concerns, and it would have a say with the 32nd verse here. How shall he not with him give us all things, all things that we need, all things we need for life and godliness and holiness? Because our text says, not only did the Father give us this unspeakable gift, but he also did not spare Christ for us. What a thing that is to know. It's that, that incredible truth that we're going to dive into today. That we are not, if we understand that, ever to harbor any doubts or suspicions of God's benevolence towards us, his people. If we would know that. Pilgrims. You have before you at the Lord's Supper a token, a token, a tangible token, in fact, to handle with your hands and taste with your mouth of his love and his benevolence. For your weak faith and mine too to lay hold of, to put aside your doubts and your cares, to see that having given his son, he will give you all you need to make it to your heavenly home with him. There is such blessed assurance found in the supper if we would meditate on a text like this. And so out of this verse, this precious verse, our theme will be the Father's care proven to us in His not sparing His own Son. The Father's care proven to us by not sparing His own Son. And we'll consider it under three headings this morning. First is the Father's great gift. Second is the son's great sacrifice. And third is the believer's great assurance or confidence. First, the father's great gift. The first part of verse 32 gives us these blessed words. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, the one who is he here, who is being referred to, is the father the first person of the Trinity. That is so because Christ is called his own son. And so we see the distinguishing of the persons of the Trinity here. And so what we would say then is, we could, uh, we could then extrapolate this and say that the verse is teaching, God the Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. You know, in communion, we often think of the son's sufferings and the Son's sacrifice for us. And that is absolutely proper. This do in remembrance of me, the Lord has said. Yet how often in communion do we then think of what the Father has done in sending us his Son? You see, we have to capture the fullness of the Godhead here, even at the table. 1 Corinthians 11.26 reminds us, and boys and girls, as we see, as you see what we are doing here at the table, remember 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. In other words, whatever is signified and sealed here at the supper by the death of Christ is shown to us. In a visible and tangible form, sensible signs, we see his death by faith. But we often neglect to see the Father's role in the bread and the wine. In the bread broken and the wine poured, he is saying, so to speak, See how I spared not my own son for you, but delivered him up for you. The sacrament is the word made visible, and it makes this word in Romans 8.32 visible to us. And it must make it visible to you by your faith, beloved. The broken bread, it preaches, God spared not his own son. The poured out wine preaches, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for the iniquity of us all. He delivered his son for all of you who come to sit at this blessed table. You are delivered from his wrath by him delivering his son up for you. You know, to meditate on this will eradicate in your mind and heart any distinctions, distinctions really, in the love of the Godhead. 
And that's what you ought to see here. You might think, as so many do, and maybe this is you today, and you must put this away, that the Son of God made the Father love me. That is wrong. That is awful. In fact, it's blasphemous, if you understood the Trinity. That's not right at all. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, these three being one, have loved you, believer, and eternally so, and in the most profound ways possible and imaginable, that God the Father does not spare His own Son for you, out of love for you. And what an endless meditation that is, if you would think on it. What you must do then, if you were to use this text rightly and use the sacrament in view of it, is you must draw a straight line from how greatly the Father loves His Son to His willingness to not spare Him for you and your iniquities. And then the line will come to your heart and it will show you how greatly the Father loves you, the believer, in view of how greatly the Father loves the Son, To know, in other words, how greatly the Father loves the Son is then to see in the sacrifice of Christ at the table how greatly the Father loves you. That helps you understand John 17, 23, when our Savior prayed to the Father that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as what? Thou hast loved me. Incredible. In the sacrament you see, thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So let's meditate on how the Father loves the Son to see how staggering it is that he would not spare his only begotten Son for our sakes. Let's consider two aspects of the Son. His uniqueness, first, and second, his perfection. First, his uniqueness. You know, the Father, he gave you not one Son out of many sons, billions of sons, He gave you his only begotten son, the uniquely eternal and begotten son of the father, the one who was always the son, even before the universe was made. Our text does not teach then that the father gave the incarnate Jesus, though that is true. He gave the eternal son of God, who then took on humanity to be our sacrifice. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The creed summarizes for us what? The Son was begotten and not made. This is the Son, co-eternal with the Father. Never a time when the Father was and the Son was not, always together from eternity to eternity. He is the Father's only Son. Boys and girls, you memorize this truth in your catechism. Equal to Him in power and in glory. He and the Father are one substance, one divine essence. As a divine person, Jesus said, My Father and I are one. There is no one like Him. And these two have shared an eternal love. They have shared an eternal bliss and an eternal happiness. Their mutual glory, love, and unity so profound, no man can grasp it in its fullness and ever will. The Father gave us this unique Son, and He had no other to give like Him. We who believe, yes, we are called the sons of God, male and female both, but we are sons by adoption, not nature. And certainly are not divine then. He is utterly unique as the Father's Son. The love they have ever shared, its depths are incomprehensible because of their unity. What did Jesus say, that, uh, or what did John say in his gospel? The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. Some fathers and sons are very close, and maybe you here, fathers, are very close to your sons, or maybe you've been close to your father, but never has a father and son been this close. Never has there been a relationship like this. What love and fellowship the Father and the Son have shared for all eternity. As Jesus prayed, For thou lovest me from before the foundation of the world. John seventeen twenty four. You know, intimate communion these two have shared in the same nature. Words fail mere men to say anything more than that, really. Now, though, think of it this way. 
This is the son that the father spared not for his people. And those of you with more than one child, you know, you love them all. I trust you treasure them all. I trust. Think of how painful it would be and how heart-wrenching it would be to sacrifice any of them. Any of them. But how would it be if you had just a single child to give up that child? What a greater sacrifice that would be, how great the sacrifice would be. Is that not why God tested Abraham by asking him to spare not Isaac? Because Isaac was Abraham's only son with Sarah, the only son of promise. And when Abraham was ready to slay Isaac, what did the Lord say? Genesis twenty-two twelve. 12. And now I know, now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not, what? Withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Do you see how, how greatly God knew Abraham, or showed Abraham really, how much he loved and feared God? Because Abraham was willing to not withhold his only son from God. So what can you say you know about the father and his action believer in not sparing his own son? Can you not say as you take the bread and you take the wine, now I know that God loves me, seeing he has not withheld his only son from me. Can you not say it? You must say it. You must believe it as you see the action. And so he is the father's unique son. But second, he is also a perfect son. And that makes him all the more precious. He's not a wayward son. He is not a son that has ever caused his father in any way, any grief at all. John 8, 29. And he that sent me is with me, Jesus said. The father hath not left me alone. Why? For I do always those things that please him. This is a son who has always pleased the father. He is the very radiance of the father after all. What the father is, he is as well. He is without spot. He is without blemish. And he's not just good. Sometimes we can get the wrong impression when we read, uh, say, the Gospels. He's not just good in his actions, right? But he is the very definition of goodness. He is the very definition of justice. He is the very definition of holiness. He is the very definition of love. He is the very definition of all those things that are good and holy. He is utter and exquisite perfection, the Son. To look on Him is to see His Father, for He is God of God, light of light, uh, very God of very God. And so the Bible calls this close-knit relationship between Father and Son something really unfathomable. And so the Bible calls Him the Father's fellow his close and dear companion in his own bosom, the Son is. That's what makes the words of Zechariah thirteen seven so staggering when the Father says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. See that text, that blessed text that we often think on in view of Romans eight thirty two, that God did not spare his own Son, He did not spare his own son who is his fellow, his closest companion, the son who is in his bosom. And the text, that text in Zechariah reveals that he became a man, the incarnate son of God, the eternal son of God became the man who is God's fellow, taking on flesh to take on a human soul and a human body. That's why the father calls him the man who is my fellow. The son became man, taking on a a, a true body and a reasonable soul. And, but his person, he is the divine person, the son of God who took on this nature. He's not two persons. He is the same divine person who is ever with the father eternally. Why, child of God, did he take on a body so that the father could break it? Why did he take on a soul so that He could atone for our sins. He was given a body so that the Father could awake his sword, that 
he might be pierced, that his precious blood would flow out of him, as you'll see it flow into the chalice. And we will see then a sign that the father spared not his son and pierced him with his own sword, that his blood would flow out and all of your sins would be atoned for. And then you are going to read in the scriptures, though you will not see it straight away in the tokens here, that his soul was made an offering for sin in Isaiah 53.10. And listen to this when you think of the relationship between father and son. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. What a thing that is. It pleased God the father to bruise his son to pierce him with many sorrows, to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for sin. Yes, what do we read of here? And maybe we need to read closely in Romans 8.32. It says it well, the father did not spare his own son. I don't know if you can think on what those words really portend, that he gave no mercy, no mercy at all to his own precious and beloved son. Words really fail me. I don't know if I can express it, so I trust the Spirit will push it into your heart. He did not spare his own son. And for who? For you and me who believe. What a thing that is. God stayed Abraham's hand. God spared Abraham's son, but God spared not his own. Why? Why is it? Do you think on it? It is so that you, his people, may have mercy. What a thing it is. No mercy for his own son who is precious to him so that you might have mercy from God. At the table, will you not see what the father, what the, the father told Abraham not to do, but he would do himself? He told Abraham, put the knife away. Why? I will provide the lamb. So that in the fullness of time, right, as he provides the lamb of God, God the Father would withdraw his own sword and say, Awake, O sword, against the man that is my fellow. Yes, against my only begotten son. You know, even as there is that prefiguring of the father slaying the son in Abraham and Isaac, what is the difference really between Abraham's willingness and the father's willingness? The difference is the father was not compelled by any higher power. See, Abraham was told by God to do it. But God, out of his own free will, was not compelled. It was not somebody else's idea, now was it, friends? Did something constrain him? Did an angel come? Or did you plead with God and say, slay your son for me? No, of course not. The Father, his will is pure and free. He freely slew his own son. He did it without compulsion. The word in Isaiah 53.10 was what? He was pleased. He was pleased to put him to grief. He was pleased to bruise him. And in view of who his son is to him, how astonishing this ought to be to you. How utterly astonishing. Who is he pleased to slay a son for? The righteous? No, for there is none. The unrighteous. The sinner. The wicked. The ones who did not love the Father. The ones who despised Him and sinned greatly against Him. You and me, believers. Because while we were yet sinners, the Father spared not His own Son. Not sparing His righteous Son for we who are unrighteous. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This is how great and deep divine love is. Now then, do you better understand that other verse in Romans 5.8? But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We sometimes look on, on Christ dying and we see God's love in Christ dying for sinners. But we don't step back a bit, do we? We don't step back a bit to see God's love in him not sparing his own son on the cross. It's not just the son's sufferings in view, uh, in his humanity. We also see the love of God the Father. We forget his work in not sparing his own son, not sparing the one he loves so dearly for sinners. And this is where we come to next, for sinners that he also loves dearly. 
demonstrated there, God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were yet sinners, God spared not his own son. Will you see then the love of the Father at the table and not just the love of the Son? Romans 5.9 says, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Why are you saved from the wrath of the Father? What is the sole reason? It's because he spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for you all, meaning in our place. And so having meditated on the Father's great gift, Let's meditate on the Son's great sacrifice as our second heading. Now, you must always remember that the Father and Son are of the same mind. Spirit, too. We'll get to the Spirit. We'll get to Him a bit later. Believer, in other words, you are to see at the table not only the Father not sparing His own Son, but His Son then, who was a willing sacrifice as well. He didn't go under compulsion. He went willingly. Now, I don't know a whole lot about what was going on in Isaac's mind as he went up and trudged up the mountain, but it doesn't show him fighting in any way against his father. And maybe there was in his heart some reservation about what will be done, but there was no reservation at all in the heart and mind of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. He went willingly. He went willingly. He did not veil his glory as he came to this earth reluctantly. He did not lay down his life unwillingly. He purposed freely to do all of that. He said in John 10, 18, No man of his life, speaking of his life, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Again, not under compulsion at all, but doing it freely. He laid down his life out of love, For his father, certainly, as he said, I always do the things that please him. And maybe you see a picture of Isaac and his father there. But it's a very crude picture, ultimately, compared to the picture of the Son of God and the Father above. But what you have to also understand, though, is not only did he do it out of love for the Father, but the same, very same self-love that the Father has for you in not sparing his own son is the very same love that the Son of God has for his people. He is one with his Father. The Father's love is the same love that he has. The objects of the Father's love are the very same objects of the Son's love and the Holy Ghost's love. The same love that would move the Father to not spare his Son is the same love that moves the Son to sacrifice himself. The Trinity is a triunity after all. The same internal love manifests, yes, in different external works, but its source is all the same. Jesus said of himself in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Who did he lay down his life for? The text says he delivered him up, speaking of God the Father, for us all, who are the us all. Out of the context of the chapter, and we won't go into this thoroughly, it is the elect of God. The very next verse makes that clear. Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Those are the ones who earlier in the chapter we read of were predestinated in verse 30. Those who are called, who, uh, who are justified and glorified. These are the elect of God. And boys and girls, when you see that in your Bible, the elect, these are all those who are predestined to receive and believe on Jesus. They are ones that God has, this is the truth of this chapter, isn't it? That God has loved, the triune God has loved from eternity past. All of you who believe on the Lord and have saving faith on the Lord Jesus are his elect. And also blessedly, and I don't know who you all are, all of you who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as well are his elect too. So don't think that your unbelief today precludes you from being one of the elect. You may be one of the elect here. All it takes is faith in the Lord to testify that you were chosen before the world began in Christ. And what does the Bible call you, his elect? You're called various things, glorious things in the Bible, the apple of his eye. You are called his jewels. You have sparkled in the mind of God from eternity past. I don't know 
who you all are, but God surely knows, and you can know yourself. No man, though, knows who the elect are, save God himself, all the elect, who they are. But you can know, again, if you are one of the elect, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe on the Lord, and maybe you don't yet, but you believe on him now, if you call on his name now, you can know that you are the elect of God, and God will not have started to love you now. He has always loved you from eternity past and has brought you to saving knowledge of himself in the appointed hour. That's the glorious thing about those of us who believe on the Lord is we have a love that never began. As I'm fond of telling my children, if you are one of God's elect, if you believe on the Lord, he has loved you before I have loved you. He has loved you forever and will love you forever. And what a thing that is, what a love that is, a love that surpasses all knowledge. All of you who are God's elect, who will one day take their place at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and even now are going to take your place at the Lord's table. You are to give diligence, the Bible says, to make your calling and your election sure. But that's not a thing to beat yourself up over, right? At the end of it, you are then assured of God's love when you are when you make your calling and election sure. You know, there will be a very helpful division in the congregation shortly. It's not a perfect division as people take their places at this table because some of the elect might be sitting out. Some will come who ought never to come like Judas, who betrayed the Lord. But I just want to set before your thought, in glory, there will be a perfect division of sheep and goats. And the question for you today is, which side will you be on? Do you know? To the sheep. It will be as though the Father will point them out and say, I spared not my own son for them. And that is why they will enter into the joy of their Lord. But for the goats, he will send those into everlasting hellfire for their sins. So which side are you on? Do you know? Do you have assurance, believer, that you'll be on the Lord's side forever? And if not, may this be the day you call on the name of the Lord, that you see him in the supper and in the word, and you come to him for eternal blessedness. And then you could say, my God, you have loved me forever, and you have sent your spirit into my heart that I may know the love of God today. Which side will you be on? But as for hellfire, this is truly, and we must never forget this, This is what all the elect of God deserve. In other words, and maybe this will cheer you, believer, you are not elect because you are better than the next man. Uh, You and I, we are fallen, we are filthy, we are vile sinners like the sea of humanity. The way of righteousness we had not known either, the Bible says. Titus 3.3, when it speaks of those who believe, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That was me. That was you, believer, before the Holy Spirit turned our hearts and applied the blood of Jesus to us. God is right or would be right to condemn us all for all of this hatred, all of this malice, all of this disobedience, all of this foolishness, all of the lusts and pleasures of the flesh. That is the sinner's just reward. And I say plainly to you all, I deserve it. I deserve it just as much as the next man. But the Lord, but God, loves his elect with utter perfection, doesn't he? In other words, whatever keeps you from the love of God, he will deal with. And if your sin is vile and as heinous and as much as it strikes against his own honor stands between you and him, he will resolve it, friends, if you're one of the elect. And that is why he spared not his own son for you, the sinner. He loves his elect so that he would never, ever see them utterly lost and perishing because of his love. And that's how Titus 3 continues. But... That blessed word, but. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to what? 
His mercy, He saved us. Mercy for us, loving kindness for us, and then on the cross, no mercy for His Son. He spared not His own Son. Not our works, not your works, not my works, but His love and His mercy saved you, believer. Let me just say, believer, and sometimes we don't say it enough, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. How can you doubt it? You know, if if you understood the scriptures, not only does God love you, how greatly God loves you. How greatly God loves you. He spared not his own son in your place. That's understood by the scripture and it's on display at the table. And as you now consider that united love, and you consider the roles of the persons of the Trinity. Now you return to the Son's expression of God's love. You've seen the Father not sparing His Son. Now let's see the Son's expression of His love in His atonement. Not an easy, not an easy thing. Not a painless thing. The Son of God's agonies can be described with one word, right? His pain can be described with that word, agony. True, Agony. The most agonizing death a man could ever know and will ever know. No one this side of glory can truly, really express it to its fullness. It's still, in many ways, a mysterious thing. Yes, there was a beating. Yes, there was gouging of his flesh. Yes, there was a crown of thorns piercing his precious brow. There was the travail that he had to carry his cross that he ran out of human strength to carry. Yes, there was the piercing of his hands and his feet. Yes, he was laid upon the cross with his back flayed open. And he was thrust upon it to be the ridicule and reviling of all men who saw him. But there was the greater and more painful agony that came that no man can quite comprehend that caused him to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you think of this, the incarnated Son has ever known the divine love of his Father's shining face. And on the cross had the Father's frowning face of vengeance for our sins laid upon him. What a thing that must have been for the incarnate Son to experience his Father's wrath. Be glad, believer, that because he was forsaken on the cross, you will never, ever have to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never. And we often neglect, though, again, as we change the scene maybe to heaven, we often neglect what this portended from the Father's perspective, that for our sake he would look upon Jesus not with a smile that he deserved, but with a frown to pour out his own wrath on his son's person, instead of what did the son deserve? Blessedness in that moment. That he had to make his son sin for us, his own son, our sin bearer. These are astonishing things that we don't meditate on enough. And our text says that the father sacrificed his son for us all. You know, there isn't a single one of God's elect who doesn't need his sacrifice. There isn't a single one of you that hasn't had the sacrifice of Christ applied to you. You know, all of us who are elect, who believe on the Lord, need the same Christ. We need the same great atonement. None of us, I don't need something less. Paul didn't need something less. You there don't need something less than the atoning work of the Son of God. The one same Christ that our text says, who saves to the uttermost, was necessary for you all, but was also given to you all as well, and not withheld from any of you. The same Christ given to you all, to all believers. That's why at the table we sup of the one same Christ that the Father has given for us all at this communal table. And the all includes all kinds of sinners, praise God for that. Because the elect are comprised of every kind of sinner. Have you been an adulterer, believer? God spared not his own son for you. 
Have you been a murderess? Have you been murderous in your heart? Or even externally, have you plunged the knife in someone else but have faith and repentance? What a thing it is. God spared not his own son for you. Are you or have you been a blasphemer? God spared not his own son for you. Have you been the chief of all sinners? God spared not his own son for you. He was given for you whatever kind of Christian you are. Whatever deficiencies and defects there are in your faith, the Son was delivered for you. Are you a backslider today? God delivered His Son for you, so come back to the Lord. Are you afflicted? Christ was delivered for you. Come to His table. Are you a bruised reed today? Christ was delivered for you, so come to His table and take of Christ. He will not break you. But he's promised to bind you. Are you rich? Christ was delivered for you, believer. Are you poor? Christ was delivered for you. Are you black? Christ was delivered for you. Are you white? Christ was delivered for you. Whatever ethnicity you are, Christ was delivered for you. Whatever you're standing in this world, whatever you are, whatever your pain even, whatever your sin, if you have saving faith, Christ was delivered for us all. And so how does this passage conclude from verse 38 onward? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded today? The whole point of this text, especially verse 32, not just verse 32, but especially 32, is that you be persuaded that nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you not persuaded when you think on this simple truth? He did not spare his own son. Can you not be persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor any creature, nor any providence, can or will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not leave this place without being persuaded, believer. That will lead us then to our final heading, which is the believer's great confidence. Well, in view of the Father not sparing his Son, but delivering him up for us all, what is the use of the text? You know, this text is so small in some ways, yet so vast in scope. And it has a use built right into it. And the use of it is profound. It's the question, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What assurance comes, believer, when you know that the Lord, who freely gave his own son, will freely give you all things you need for life and godliness and perseverance to the end? Freely, what a word that is. After all, he freely gave you Christ, didn't he? Did you pay for him? Did you earn him in any way? No. He freely, out of his goodness and love, gave you Christ. At the table, you come to, as in Isaiah 55, come to take and eat Christ without price and merit, without righteousness of your own. You come to take him, the greatest gift of all, that inexpressible, unspeakable gift. So how will he not, with this unspeakable gift of Christ, not freely give you all that you need, all that is necessary for you, without you again earning it or meriting it? There is nothing you can do to merit or earn any favor or gift from God. And that is also what gives assurance. It's not that I have to make X pilgrimages to a certain place. It's not I have to do a certain number of works and then God will show his face to me. He will freely give you all things in him. And you are not allowed to doubt that believer, beloved, not when he spared not his own son for you. Will you doubt that you will have all that you need to get to glory into the very presence of your God? No doubts allowed. If there is some besetting sin in you, you must believe he will give you the remedy. If there is some need for endurance, you must believe with Christ he will give you the strength. If there is some grief 
in your heart today, you must know that along with Christ, the God of all comfort and consolation will give you consolation freely. If there is some anxiety over your daily bread, he will give you your daily bread, whatever form that takes. You know, a meditation on the preciousness of Christ and the Father not sparing him leads to such great assurance, friends. It settles your heart. It quiets your soul in anxious times. And when you have some anxiousness over godliness or life in general, will you not recall the sacrament you will take shortly and say, God did not withhold his own son from me. How shall he not with him give me all things? You come and you taste and see that the Lord is good and you have that connection to your soul with the text. You must come to the table yearning for the assurance of God's love that it portends. You behold the broken bread, and what does it speak a word to you from the Father? I would not spare my own son. You behold the poured out wine as I pour the wine out, and its, uh, and its pouring signifies, I would not spare my son. He paid every drop that sin deserves in his people. And then he asks you then the question, how would I then withhold any good thing that you need? Have I not said, for the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Do you believe these things? Well, your faith is meant to behold the sacrament. Our weak faith is so that we would know no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And the argument is very simple. Boys and girls, as you learn logic later on and rhetoric, you'll see this is a, a greater to lesser argument, isn't it? And so what it is is that he has freely given you the greatest thing that you need, his son. And then you ask, why would he withhold any lesser thing from me that I need? Boys and girls, if a man freely bequeathed to you a, a mansion, do you think he would withhold from you a cup of water? Wouldn't that be folly to think of such a thing? And how much greater this inexpressible, unspeakable gift of Christ is? Why would he withhold any lesser thing that you need? To have this knowledge of the Father would have us persuaded that even in our hard providences, even those hard providences then, right, are given to us out of love. They're actually a thing that he is not withholding from us. Therefore, are good. And you read that very plainly. We memorize it in the 28th verse, don't we? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so what I would just encourage you with is some experimental religion this morning. As you take your portion of the bread and you take your sip of the cup, there is a very good habit for you to take, which is to put yourself into this text personally. We often don't do that, but the Apostle Paul gave us that, that pattern in Galatians 2.20. He didn't just give a general pattern of, well, the Son of God loved the elect and gave himself for them. No, he puts himself into it. So what you need to do is you need to eat the bread and say and think and meditate, the Father spared not his own Son for me. As you sip the wine, you say, the Father delivered up his own son for me. You observe all at the table as the elements go by them, and they partake one by one. And you say, he was not just given for me, he was given for us all. This is the body of Christ, the Father's family, the people of God, his one son given not for one, but for many. And so let me close this way, believer. And I want to do it by returning to the Trinity. The triune God loves you. They are indivisible. They are united in their singular love for their people. The Father loves you and spared not his own Son. The Son loves you and gave himself to you. The Spirit loves you and he seals the Son to you in the sacrament. What do we read of in the Bible? We read in Romans uh, 5, 5, that the Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of the triune God. With tenderness and grace and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God, and that's not the love of a single person in the Trinity. The love of God, all three persons, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That's his unique role. 
which is, and listen to this, given unto us. Now, in all of this, you can miss this fact that the love of God is maybe summarized in this way, all three persons giving. All three persons giving. The Holy Spirit even giving of himself freely to shed the love of God into your hearts. Do you see how the love of God is is shown in that one word? Is that not what is shown in the sacrament? He is a giving God. He gives everything that his people needs. And it's all portrayed here. And in two words, if I would take not just one word, two words, I would say freely giving. Freely giving without price. Freely giving undeserved to those who have no merit. And so see not just the love of Jesus at the table, but the love of the entire triune God. So are you persuaded that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost will freely give you all things if the Father withheld not his Son? When you come to the table, know that they smile upon you with love, believer. Be persuaded of the love of God and his benevolence towards you. At the table, give thanks to God for this unspeakable gift. Amen. May he be pleased to use this meditation to deepen our communion with himself. Please rise for prayer if able. What can we say to these things, O God? But thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, his gift of Christ, your gift of Christ to us. Your relentless, relentless uh, uh, showing forth the wrath of God on your Son, that we who are sinners might receive mercy. Father, we thank you, O God, that you love us so dearly, and you show it to us by not sparing that Son that you love so dearly, that Son that has ever shared in your glory, that Son who has ever been in the bosom of the Father from before the worlds began, from uh, eternity past. And, O God, who are we that you would not spare him for our sake? Your people now come to bless you and forget forget not all your benefits. Father, we are also thankful that Christ did not remain in the grave, that Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We thank you, Father, and bless you for our Redeemer who is raised to your right hand in power and even now is about to feed us on his very body and blood. We bless you, O God, and thank you for this unspeakable gift in Christ. Amen. Please be seated for a moment.